Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. As we work our way through the scriptures. like to see a show of hands. How many people have seen Stephen King's It? In that few of you? Okay, shame on you. What do you think? No. <laughs> Stephen King's It. Now, I am not a fan of Stephen King or his sick, twisted mind, but my mother-in-law apparently is. <laughs> And so after being hounded by her for weeks, we finally watched it. Well, it's not a rated R movie. It was made for TV back in 1990. And I just have to say, that which scared us in 1990 is no longer scary today. Okay? It is that, is that movie, if you've heard about it, it's the one about the crazy clown that comes up out of the drain and kills people. That's kind of the concept behind it. But the, the problem is, once you find out that the clown is Tim Curry, he's no longer scary. You know? All I could see is that scene from Home Alone and him saying, a lovely cheese pizza. You know? I, I couldn't see the character of the clown being frightening at all. There's a lot of blood in Stephen King movies, and it grosses you out. There's a scene at one point where there's a, a young girl, and she's in the bathroom, and the bathroom, of course, is all white, and blood starts to bubble up out of the sink and get all over everything, and it's disgusting. And when we watch movies like that, for some reason, we're somewhat horrified at blood. At blood, and yet as Christians we sing about it all the time. And we don't bat an eyelash. We don't think about it. Thank you for the blood. Thank you for the blood? I mean, that's, that's kind of sick, isn't it? Almost cannibalistic that, that we would be thankful for blood. Blood, this, this red substance that, that means to us so often horror and death. And yet it is so central to the Bible. It is so central to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, so important to our lives today that whether you've known Jesus or the Lord all your life or you're coming here for the first time this morning, you need to hear about the blood. Leviticus chapter 17. Would you flip over to that chapter? Now we just started Leviticus last week. We did kind of an introduction to it. We talked about some keys to understanding the book of Leviticus. While you're flipping there, let me just remind you, the key word of the book of Leviticus is holiness. And the key personality in the book of Leviticus is Jesus Christ. Now some might say, well, isn't he a New Testament personality? No, he is a Bible personality. He is the person the entire Bible points to, directs us toward. But we also talked about the the key word, holiness, the key personality, Jesus, and the key recipients, that is, those who are called. The called. As the book begins in chapter 1, verse 1, and he called. It's a book written to those who are called. And that might make those of you who think you're not called feel a little self-conscious, like, oh, what if you're not called? Everybody is called. God is calling you, every single person. God is saying, I want you, I love you, I want to know you. I want to be in your life, I want to be involved, I want to save you. And what relationship? You are the called. So those are the the keys, but the key substance, the key substance of the book of Leviticus is blood. You will see it a lot. 
Verse 11 in chapter 17, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar, God says, to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And down in verse 14 he says, For as the life of all flesh, for as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Blood is identified with its life. Let's pray again this morning. Father, we need some clarity on this. Because honestly, if we step back and tear away, Father, kind of the Christian speak that so many church folks like myself are used to, talking about blood is an odd thing. It seems a strange thing that you would choose, especially when we read the book of Leviticus, Father, and we see all the sacrifice and all the blood. It would make some wonder, Lord, if you're not just a bloody God. But there is method to this. What we might consider madness, Father, is complete sanity in your plan. And I pray that you'll help us to understand this morning the importance of the blood, what it, mean, what it meant then, what it means for us today. And may we apply the blood to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Blood is mentioned... 460 times, give or take, in the Bible. It's a lot of blood. It's mentioned nearly 90 times in Leviticus alone and 13 times in Leviticus chapter 17. And it's said on the days of sacrifice in Jerusalem, when all the people would gather for the feast and bring in their lambs, their rams, their birds for offering into the temple, that the blood ran ankle deep in the temple courts. The Bible is a bloody book. The book of Leviticus is the bloodiest book in the Bible. And we see it firsthand as we open up to chapter 1 and we see all of the sacrifices contained there. I mean, you can just start reading. And they're everywhere. In verse 5 of chapter 1, he'll, He shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's son shall, uh, and the priest shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood all around the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Over and over and over, the blood is drained. The blood is poured out. The blood is sprinkled. The blood is placed on the horns of the altar. And we think, this is a bloody God. And especially in the days of paganism, when there were all kinds of sacrifices, human sacrifices, you'd think that God would want to be as far from that as possible. And yet, as he gathers his people, as he organizes them into a nation, as he begins to call them to holiness, he writes with blood. All over these pages, you could almost say they're written in blood. The offerings are bloody. The book is is bloody. And our concept, by the way, of offerings today doesn't even come close. The churches talk about taking up the offering. We think, oh, this is a sacrifice. We have no idea what real sacrifice is. What true offerings are. The people of Israel, if they would hear us today talking about the difficulty of of giving or of the offering, would be amazed. You have trouble giving ten bucks. I had to slit open the throat of a lamb and pour out its blood. Which is more difficult? I had to raise this, this cow, this calf, and bring it to the temple as the firstborn and offer it up for blood. That's an offering. Now, don't get me wrong. Giving back to the Lord offerings. God loves a cheerful giver, the Bible tells us. But we don't understand true offering like the Israelites did when they had to offer up animals. I, I saw recently another movie, Spanglish, 
which is a really good movie. A lot of spiritual truth in that movie. But at one point, there's these two Mexican ladies. One doesn't speak any English at all, and the other one does. And they're going for this job interview in this home, very upscale Beverly Hills type home. And as they're walking through the house, they've been invited to come in and go into the backyard where the people are waiting to interview them. And as they walk through the house, the one girl who can speak some English runs right into the sliding glass door. Bam! And her nose just starts bleeding all over the place. And so the woman of the house, who is somewhat uptight, goes running into the house and grabs towels to give her for her nose and a hunk of meat no I guess it was green peas a bag of peas and then grabs a bunch of money and runs over to her and sticks the peas on her face here you know ah thank you and then shoves the money in her hand and goes I'm so sorry I'm so sorry and there's an awkward moment she goes was that wrong should I not have put that money in your hand I just felt like I needed to give you something you know and sometimes it's like that with, with offerings we think about the blood and, and we're running we grab the money stick it in there real quick and, and then we think is that, is that how I respond to the grace of God is that how I respond to his love for me is I, I quickly tuck some money in his hand we don't understand offering offering means blood we're not going to start requiring blood here so you can relax but you got to ask what the deal is with all this why all the blood is God just a bloodthirsty deity is he just some kind of vampirical tyrant with an appetite for sacrifice some Christians even avoid the Old Testament for this very reason because every time they come to these sacrifices and this bloodiness of God it's like oh it doesn't jive with grace I'm going to go over and read about Jesus in the New Testament of course again, the reality is the blood offered in the New Testament is much more brutal than that of the Old so we'll get there in a moment the emphasis on blood does seem to fly in the face of New Testament grace and yet God is the same God in the Old Testament and in the New listen to this verse Isaiah 44 verse 6 thus says the Lord the King of Israel and his Redeemer the Lord of hosts two personalities there that's interesting I am the first and I am the last there is no God besides me so if I was writing that I would have written it this way that says the Lord the King of Israel and his Redeemer the Lord of hosts we are the first and we are the last there are no other gods but us that's not what he says one more time Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. There is no God beside me. Who are we talking about? We're talking about God the Father and Jesus. There is no God beside me. So what's the deal with all the blood? What's the deal with the blood? I had some other things I wanted to talk about in Leviticus. Not jump all the way up to chapter 17. But as I read these things and thought about them this week, I realized we've got to deal with the blood before we go any further. We got to understand the blood first, and then we can understand the rest of the book. Once we get the blood down, that blood is the symbol, it's the graphic symbol for life. It's the one thing that without it, we're dead. Drain the blood from me, and I will not survive. Blood is not only the life, but also verse 11 of chapter 17 says the blood is required to make atonement for the soul. There must be blood for atonement. Now, this is interesting. Warren Wiersbe writes the following Long before medical science discovered the significance of the circulation of the blood in the human body and and its importance for life scripture told us scripture told us that the blood was the life 
See, I love when the Bible beats science. I love when the scientists figure something out and go, oh yeah, we already knew that because it was in God's Word. He told us long before your little experiments that this is the way it is. Wiersbe goes on and says, when a sacrifice was offered and its blood was shed, it meant the giving of a life for the life of another. The innocent victim died in the place of the guilty sinner. Any theology that ignores or minimizes the blood isn't founded on the word of God. To be founded on His word, to be from God, you've got to have a theology that is based in the blood. The blood sacrifice is required. The life of one for the life of the other. Someone's got to pay. Why is that? Well, let me give you a couple reasons this morning. Number one, sin makes a bloody mess of things. Sin makes a bloody mess of things because sin always, 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 and especially teenagers, please hear me on this, sin always results in death. Always. Proverbs 10.16 tells us the wages of the righteous is life. The income of the wicked is punishment. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Now you might say, well I've sinned and I haven't died. Well the wages of sin is death. You're not always paid when you do the work, are you? I mean for me payday comes on the 15th and then the last day of the month. So I'm already doing the work ahead of time. Payday comes after the fact. The wages of sin is death. You may not die immediately when you sin, but I guarantee you, sin will cause death. The theology of this runs all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. As God spoke to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, He commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So Adam and Eve, what did they do? They ate the fruit. But you know the story. They didn't die that day. God made a pronouncement. In the day you eat it, Adam, you will surely die. But he didn't. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sin. You might say, okay, so in the day that Adam sinned, death entered the world, but he still didn't die. Did he in that day? Well, there's another way to look at it that's interesting. The Bible says a day is to the Lord like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And we know that Adam lived 969 years, just short of a thousand. So a day of the Lord, yeah, within the day he died. From God's perspective... But I believe there's more to it than that, gang. The Bible speaks of physical death, but the Bible also talks about spiritual death. It talks about relational death. It talks about death in numerous different ways. And I believe that Adam and Eve, spiritually speaking, flatlined in the Garden of Eden on that day. Well, what do you mean? Adam and Eve died the death of intimacy. They died the death of innocence. They died the death of paradise. They experienced the death of peace as they were driven out of the garden. All things that were good died for them that day. Curled up and rotted away. And maybe you can relate. Because sin makes a bloody mess of things. And like the blood sacrifices at the altar that Israel had to give, sin causes life to drain away. And it may not be in the very day that it's committed, but it drains the very life out of you. What Christian adults among us doesn't remember or look back to your youth and mourn the death of some aspect of your innocence? 
when we think about in our past, when we look back, I'm not even talking about sins we commit today, but just looking back to childhood or, or to adolescence and thinking about what you did. I remember vividly the first time I touched in my life. I was in sixth grade. I lasted a while. Pretty proud of myself. A little self-righteous by that time. But being cool mattered a little more than looking good with the church people. And I started to discover that I could look good with the church people but go to school and be a totally different kid. It worked for me, I thought. And at this point, though I thought it was a really cool word then, you go, what's the word, what's the word? It doesn't matter. (laughs) And I'm not going to tell you. And the reason is because there is no glory in sin. As a matter of fact, if I can just side note for a second, when we give testimonies or witnesses and we talk about what we've gone through and where we've been and the sin that God brought us from, I have a feeling that we tend to like to sit in the sin area and talk about how bad we were. There's no glory in that. It's shameful. That's not the good news. The good news is where you've been since. The good news is what Jesus does in your life. But I remember that word. And though it's irrelevant, I know that a part of my innocence died that day. I went on as a teenager to struggle with language, to have a foul mouth through junior high and high school. And to wish that I had never spoken that first word, that I had never done that first thing. And you can, you can extrapolate that to anything else in your life. I wish I hadn't taken the first drink. I wish that I hadn't smoked that that first joint. I wish that I hadn't slept with that one person. I wish it had never happened. Because I died that day. Because innocence was lost. Because my life was altered in that moment. Sin makes a bloody mess of things. Sin brings the death of relationships. It causes the death of our joy, the death of hope, the death of our future plans oftentimes, the death of family, and on and on it goes. The wages of sin is death. We don't like to think about that much. But let me just help you relax for a moment when you realize that we are all sinners. We have all sinned. We have all failed in some aspect of our life. Every one of us. There's no one perfect here. We have all sinned. So God set up the sacrifices to graphically portray what sin does. It kills. It drains the life out of you. And for every beast, every lamb, every turtle dove that was offered as sacrifice, as the blood was draining out, the Israelites could graphically watch that and recognize and see and understand my sin did that. My sin requires that. Sin is a bloody mess. But the sacrifices also serve to remind us something else. That sin spilled the blood of my Savior. Here we are, 2,000 years after the fact, actually much further than that, 3,500 years after the fact, and we recognize something else in these sacrifices. They all point to Jesus. They all are pictures of Him. As we talked about Wednesday night, they are cameos of Christ. We've got about halfway through the sacrifices. We'll get through the rest of them this Wednesday night. Cameos of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 tells us, According to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, I'd like to invite you to turn to Hebrews in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews chapter 10. And just keep your finger there for a moment as we read a few things out of that chapter. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in the first verse. Hebrews.
Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 For the law Since it has only a shadow of the good things to come And not the very form of the things Can never By the same sacrifices which they offer continually Year by year Make perfect those who draw near Sacrifices don't work he's saying Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered Because the worshippers Having once been cleansed Would no longer have had consciousness of sins But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it's impossible for the blood of of bulls and goats to take away sins. Without the shedding of blood, my friends, there is no forgiveness, the Bible says. But no blood shed by bulls and goats and rams and lambs can bring forgiveness. There is an equivalency problem. What do you mean? The shedding of an animal's blood can never be equal trade for a human being. If given the choice between your daughter being murdered or your dog being murdered, is there a question? And if there is, please see me afterwards. (laughs) If you have a choice between saving the life of your son or your turtle, the animal and the human, there cannot be that equivalency. It's dangerous in our society that people have elevated animals to the place of human beings. It's dangerous because they are not equal with man. There's an equivalency problem. The Hebrew, by the way, the Hebrew word atonement gives us a problem too. We mentioned this a few weeks ago. I want to make sure you heard it. The word atonement is an Old Testament word that you will not find in the New Testament. The word atonement means covering. And as the people would sacrifice the the rams and the lambs, they would receive a covering for sin. But the New Testament sacrifice of Jesus is not just a covering. You know about coverings. You know about cover-ups. Especially you ladies do. Cheryl's got this little thing called cover-ups. It's, it's makeup, but it's cover-up. So this is, you know, and, and ladies, I appreciate so much that you put your faces on and make yourselves pretty and all that. I don't, I don't get having makeup first, and then you still have to have cover-up. It must be pretty bad. <laughs> Tired of it? I mean, teenagers, I just, I'm here to let you know the zits don't stop. Anyway, so you get one and you're about to go out, and it's a very important night, and so you're like, ah, cover up. Can't even see it. It's gone. Of course, everybody can because it's a different color than your skin, but we'll skip that. That's what the Hebrew word atonement means, and that's all it did. It covered up sin, but the sin was still there. And everybody knew it. The sin was still underneath. The blood of the lamb might for that moment make a person feel better. And and provide for atonement covering. But the sin was still there. The sin still was beneath the covering. You might say, well, wait a minute, I have a King James Bible and I just looked up atonement in the New Testament. I found it, there's one verse. You're right, there is one verse in the King James Version. It's Romans chapter 5, verse 11. that says, we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. The problem is, the word there doesn't mean atonement. The word means literally exchange. 
by the blood of Jesus we have received an exchange. His blood for my blood. His blood doesn't just cover my sin, it replaces the blood that I should spill for my sin. And so all of these sacrifices that Israel went through year after year after year that God commanded, He did so, so that we could understand fully, so that Israel eventually could understand fully that the sacrifices weren't enough. They all pointed to the one sacrifice that was enough, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It doesn't just cover sin, it eliminates it, it eradicates it, it annihilates sin completely. Look at verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, when He, speaking of Jesus comes into the world. He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. A body prepared for what? For sacrifice. Verse 6, And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come. In the scroll of the book it is written to me to do your will, O God. And after saying above... The writer says, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices and for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. Jesus takes away the first in order to establish the second. And by this, listen, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Unlike the blood sacrifices on the altar by the Israelites, the blood sacrifice of Jesus was one time and it was for everybody. And whoever believes in Him can have not just atonement, not just covering, but complete forgiveness of sin. And that is mind-boggling and it is mind-blowing. And it leads us to two other wonderful points. Two truths that you need to know. And the first is the extravagance of our Savior's pardon. The extravagance of our Savior's pardon. Look down at verse 14. It tells us, For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And, and, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us after saying this, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. And then He says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. They're gone. Now I don't forget sin. But God does. God goes through, when we come to Jesus, an almighty amnesia. He forgets our sin. Literally, it is the extravagance of the Savior's pardon. Friday, a friend of ours came into town. Or was it Thursday? I guess Thursday. A friend of ours that Cheryl and I have known for years and years came up from Seattle, spent the weekend with us. We had a great time. But as he came in, our little dog, Reggie, who is still a puppy and quite a bit frustrating to me, just took off out the front door. And when Reggie gets out, boy, there's no getting him back. I mean, you could, you could tempt him with pancakes and syrup. He would still run. So I'm going out after Reggie. And I'm saying, first, you know, for the first five minutes, I'm using the sweet, come on, Reggie. Come on, Reg. Come on back. Come on, buddy. Come on, Reggie. Reggie. Come on, Reg. Reggie. Reggie. And now I'm starting to get angry. And now I'm taking off up the street after Reggie in my socks. He goes the entire length of our driveway and starts heading out onto the main road. He would have gotten to 20 if I hadn't, you know, cornered him. And I finally got him and picked him up and I'm walking back up the driveway. And Cheryl's coming down toward the driveway and she's a little concerned because I've got fire in my eyes. And I say, take your stupid dog, you know. We go back into the house. 
And that night, that night Reggie was on my chest and I was petting him and he looked here and sweetest dog in the world and you know what? I forgave him. But I did not forget. Which is why there's an extra bolt on the door now. We can say all we want, we forgive, and I absolutely believe we can forgive each other, but the whole idea of forgive and forget is lost on us because we don't forget. We don't forget. And we remember things that were done to us, and we may completely love and forgive a person. We may let it go. We may walk on with them in in a great friendship, in a relationship, but we still can remember what they did. The Bible tells us God forgets. He doesn't remember. I I come to the Lord and I say, Lord, I'm sorry, I've done it again. And He goes, done what again? Well, the the sin that I committed, forgive me, I I don't mean to keep doing it over and over. You did it before? Wow, I'd forgotten. I don't retain that. This is especially important for those of us who have gone years and years of our lives feeling like our sin has just dictated who we are. And then we come to the Lord and for a brief glorious moment we go, wow, I'm forgiven. But then we start to think about it. How is that possible? With all this garbage back here. And God says, what garbage? And while we're working so hard to remember, He has completely forgotten. And that is extravagant. That is awesome. That is the complete pardon of the Lord. Micah chapter 7 verse 18 tells us, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of His possession? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. The blood of Jesus, my friends, stomps out sin, casts it into the sea, and causes a holy, almighty amnesia. God remembers them no more. And that's awesome. That's the extravagance of our pardon through Jesus. I love this verse. Psalm 149 verse 5 says, Let the godly ones exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Have you ever done that? You ever lying awake at night and laying there going... Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Your wife walks in and goes, You're praising in bed? Have you ever been so excited about something that you just couldn't sleep? I mean, the two times when I was a kid that that always happened was the night before we went to Disneyland and the night before Christmas. And I was a maniac. I, honestly, I didn't like Christmas Eve much because it was so painful. I'd lie there awake at night, and, you know, all night long, and I'm singing Christmas songs, and I cannot go to sleep. You know, my grandma visited us one time, and all night long she was in the bed across the room, and it was like, Grandma, what time is it? Grandma, what time is it? Grandma, Grandma, what time is it? And this is what the psalmist is indicating here. I sing for joy on my bed. Why would anybody sing for joy on their bed? Why would anybody be so excited they can't sleep? Because they recognize, they realize the extravagance of God's pardon. How awesome is that? But before we get too giddy at the thought that our sins are forgotten... I run headlong into this stunning, silencing truth. The extent of our Savior's passion. 
So there is an extravagance of his pardon, but there is a great extent beyond what we think. The extent of our Savior's passion. As he was laid out on the wood of the cross, his blood sprinkled on the altar of the cross, sin was not just paid for generically, it was paid for, listen to this, individually. Oh, so you're saying that he paid for my sins and Les's and Corey's. That he paid for all of our sins individually. I'm saying he paid for every single one of your sins individually, one by one by one on the cross. Every one. It's what the bloody book of Leviticus points out, that every individual singular sin must be atoned for. And that was the problem with the sacrifices for Israel. Man, you'd take the lamb in there, and you'd, you'd get the lamb sacrificed, and you'd have atonement, and you'd be walking out of the tabernacle and stub your toe, and blah, and now you've sinned again. Gotta go get another lamb. Gotta get a turtle dove. Gotta keep the sacrifices going, because I can't get rid of this sin, and yet the cross tells us Every sin must be atoned for. Every sin must be paid for. And it was on the cross. But watch this. It's more a greater extent than that. Revelation chapter 5 verse 6. John is talking about Jesus in this vision, this amazing vision he has. And he said, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Now you need to think about this for a moment because it's stunning. Jesus died long about, what, 30, 33 A.D., somewhere in there. John received the revelation in the late 90s. Sixty years after the crucifixion of Christ, John gets a vision of Jesus, and what does he see? Jesus looking as a lamb, having just been slain. That's what the language intends there. That's what it means, that he saw a lamb having just been slain. As if it had just happened, that instant. And yet we know historically by our you know, time-space continuum, 60 years had gone by. And yet when John saw Jesus, he looked like it had just happened. But the revelation of Christ and his suffering on the cross goes the other direction as well. This is mind-blowing. Revelation 13 verse 8 tells us the following. It refers to Jesus as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What? I thought he was slain around 33 A.D. Well, yeah, because that's the way we think. God created day one and said there was evening and there was morning one day. And from that point on, time began. And we've been rolling in time up to the present day, 2005. And yet for God, there's no time. It is one great, big, eternal now. The Lamb, 60 years after the crucifixion, in fiction, looking as though he had just been slain. The Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, always looking slain. And we get some insight here, a precious clue as to how this all works. For in one respect, Jesus did die 2,000 years ago. But in another respect, Jesus' death happened just now. Right now. Look at it this way. In the moment of your sin, right then, Jesus is being crucified. How does that work? Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 14 tells us, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. That which has been already and that which will be has already been. 
What in the world is he saying? Eternally speaking, we look at past, present, and future, but with God, they do not exist. He is the I Am. He lives in the eternal now. And for God, everything that happens is happening now. Every moment we experience from the beginning of time to the end of time all happens like that for God in the eternal now, including and specifically the crucifixion of Christ. That's how Jesus' death on the cross to pay for people's sins before the crucifixion and can continue to pay for people's sins even now, 2,000 years later. Because God is not a respecter of time in this way. He is beyond time. It is one big now. So when I sin, and please listen closely here, when I sin in the temporal now, I am impacting the eternal now. If I leave here today, and I choose to go home and sin tonight, while I can rejoice in the extravagance of forgiveness, I need to deal with this. I am contributing to the extent of Jesus' suffering on the cross. Every sin I choose to commit must be paid for. Every one. Which means on the cross, Jesus felt every one. You think you feel bad in your life for things you've done? Oh, great. Big church guilt trip, Rick. Thanks a lot. I wish it were that simple. I wish I could tell you right now all we're talking about is a guilt trip. We're not. We are far too cavalier toward Calvary. Hey, Jesus, thanks for the cross, dude. Appreciate it. Thanks for dying for me. We sing a couple of songs. We take some communion. We leave and we're on to the next thing. And Jesus is dying every time we sin. But that's not the extent of Christ's passion. That's not it. It's deeper than that. It's not about guilt. It's about passion. But it's not even about my passion. It's about His. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. God demonstrates His own love toward us. In that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you've got to stop there for a moment and think, that's unbelievable. While we were sinners, not after we cleaned it up, not after life was in order, not after the house was cleaned, but while I was in the mess, the bloody mess of sin, while that was going on, Jesus died for me. Much more than, Paul writes, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. And this is the extent of His passion. Listen, God is not saying, don't sin, spare me the pain. He's saying, don't sin because I want to spare you the pain. I don't want you to die the death. I don't want you to lose that relationship. I don't want your marriage to fail. I don't want your life to go down the toilet. I don't want you to lose that job. I don't want you to be captive to to alcohol or to drugs or to anything else. I don't want that for you. It's amazing that God can say that knowing that each one of those sins impacts Jesus on the cross and yet He still is saying it's not about me, it's about you. I want to forgive you. I want you freed. I am passionate about you. I don't want sin to drain your life away. I don't want you to be lost in the confusion of the world. I want to save you. I love you that much. That's the extent of His passion. And so Leviticus 17.11 tells us, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar, and the extent of God's passion, my friends, cannot be limited to a single event, a one-time shot at Calvary. It was once for all, and it covers all of eternity. I personally believe that when we see Jesus, 
throughout all eternity we will see the scars we will recognize him as the lamb having just been slain and we will always remember not our sins for even those will be forgotten by us but we will always remember the extent of his passion and his love for us